Well, this morning I want to open up with a scene from a very well-known epic, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, There's actually two of these scenes, at least two of these scenes in the movie, and this is the scene where the orcs are arranged in battle array before the city. And if you, uh, I don't know if you watched The Lord of the Rings, but as far as the eye can see, these orcs are arranged in front of the city and around the city. And they have fires and their smoke, the drums are pounding. They threaten the city with a destruction. They threaten the city with terror and horror from what the orcs will do once they enter the city. Well, this scene is actually the scene that our passage that Terry just read Uh, that opens up our passage today. It's the scene where Israel's enemies are kind of knocking at the door, if you will, and the king is worried about what to do before its enemies. The enemies uh, at that time were Israel's neighbors, uh, actually one of the uh, supposed allies of Judah, Israel, and then another neighbor, Damascus. But the kings, uh, the uh, enemies throughout the book of Isaiah are the Assyrians who would come in and would uh, terrorize a people, would take their, take their women back home to Assyria and would, and would uh, literally breed them, would kill all of the men. The other uh, enemy in the book of Isaiah is Babylon, who would literally take and exile the entire nation. Uh, back to other places and maybe even back to Babylon so that uh, the, the nation itself could no longer be a threat to Babylon. This is, the, this is the story behind the promise of the virgin birth. Before we uh, enter, though, uh, the story of the virgin birth, I really want to unpack Isaiah seven fourteen today. But before we do that, we actually need to go back traverse back in biblical history and world history as well, uh, several thousand years, to see why all of this turmoil uh, has taken place. So while we do that, if, uh, I, I have a whole bunch of passages this morning, and so that we're not all lost, I've asked uh, Josiah and Noah, much to their chagrin, uh, to pass out uh, these, two, these two handouts. And on the handouts, I just have a bunch of uh, Bible passages and and Christmas carols that we're actually going to be, I'm going to be reading this morning at various times. There are two pages, uh, front and back, so four total, and, and again, at your pleasure, you can follow along with me. I'll go ahead and read you the, the main verse that we're going to be looking at this morning. That's Isaiah 7.14. This is, of course, the famous, uh, the fa- famous prophecy of the virgin birth. Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and will call his name Emmanuel. I want to uh, read, I don't have this on the passage uh, or on the handout, but uh, I want to read the lyrics of the song that we sang this morning again so that we can see how Uh, common this idea is, even in our Christmas carols, I didn't even realize this, which is why it's not on the sheet, and I didn't realize it until we sang it this morning, but O come, O come, Emmanuel, that's the prophecy that we'll be reading about uh, this morning, 
uh, and ransom captive Israel. That mourns, that is that Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. So here the song actually catches, captures very much the essence of what is going on in the Bible, that Israel is in exile. Israel has been judged and Israel has been destroyed uh, for her sins. So this again, now we have to traverse back, if you will, uh, you know, in, in, in the Bible, really in history, to figure out why this is so. Why is this such a big deal? So I just want to warn you, the first roughly half of uh, the message this morning is going to be bad news. It's going to be about the destruction uh, that has taken place. In the opening chapters of the Bible, right, God makes a couple promises. Right? He makes a couple promises. He wants to give his people, he wants to give them a land. He wants to be among them. Right? He wants to uh, be a leader. He wants to either have or be a leader among them. So really three ideas here. He wants them to have a place to live. He wants them to have a leader who will lead it with righteousness and with justice. And he wants to be uh, with them. Of course, there's only one problem. And that is that uh, the people, all the way back again in the biblical story, starting with Adam and Eve, have trouble obeying. Right? And consequently, consequently, they're kind of kicked out of the garden, if you know this part of the story. Well, God uh, makes a similar promise to uh, Adam's great-great-great-great-great-grandson Noah. Right? He promises to give uh, the people a, a place. He promises to kind of lead them through his people and to give, him, give them uh, his presence. And this is kind of an international, everybody over here, I have to do this with my students sometimes too. Uh, this is kind of a multinational or an international promise, right? This is not, the story is not just about Israel, right? This is long before Israel. This is to all the nations of the known earth at that point. And of course, Noah and his descendants sin and, and disobey God. Well, then we come on the scene with Abraham, right? God chooses this one man from Adam's descendants, wants to bless him, and actually tells Abraham, look, in your future grandson, way, 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 way down, all of these nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Of course, we don't know how at that point, but we just know that Abraham has this promise. Well, eventually, Abraham's great, 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 great grandchildren multiply and become this nation, Israel. God, of course, rescues Israel out of Egypt, makes them the same promise. You know, look, I want to give you a land that is a place to live. I want to uh, have a leader, a, a, per, a person lead you in righteousness and justice. And he, he even gives them a pretty good one, Moses, right? And uh, he then says, I want to dwell among you. But, of course, there's a problem. And that is, again, the people can't obey. God actually even gives Israel some, some instructions on how to live proper sanitation, what their families, you know, how to, how to have a good marriage, how to uh, uh, raise uh, godly children, how to uh, treat the orphan and the widow with justice, and uh, how to do this and how to do that, and how to have government and so on and so forth. He gives them all of these commandments, and of course, 
they failed to obey, actually worship these false gods. This is the problem. Well, as Israel moves on, eventually they get a king. Again, he's a pretty good king. This is King David, whom you've probably heard about. So, so far, we've been through Adam. I'm sure you've heard about Adam and Eve. We've been through Noah. We've been through Abraham. Now we're at David. And actually, this is uh, probably one of the first passages on the, uh, your handout. Psalms 2.6. He makes, another, he makes a promise to David about David's son. And this is a pretty interesting promise. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. This is from Psalm 2, 6, and 7. On Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today, I am giving you birth. Again, we don't know exactly. It's, it's pretty hard at one point, at least in Israel's history, to know exactly how this is going to take place. But this is the promise. And he goes on and talks about how people should worship uh, the son there in verse 12, and blessed are all those who take refuge in this son. This is in the Psalter. Well, again, like the rest of the history, unfortunately, David, King David, who was king over Israel, died. He messed up. He actually committed adultery. He even committed murder. He conspired to commit murder. So David himself messes up. David dies. And this gives birth to all of the kings of Israel. The kings of Israel are talked about in the book of Kings in your Bibles. And this is a historian who takes from uh, the annals or the chronicles of uh, all of these kings of Israel and Judah. And I want to give you a quick summary of, of these kings. And this is from the historian in this book. The historian characterizes well, I, I need to back up. So after David, we get David's son Solomon. You've probably heard of Solomon too. Well, Solomon's son actually divide when he becomes king, he divides the kingdom because of some foolishness. So then after Solomon, we have the kingdom of Israel, and then we have the kingdom of Judah. So now Israel has become two nations, Judah and Israel. And that'll be important as we move forward in the story. And then we have all of these kings that I began to talk about. Well, the historian in the book of Kings characterizes all 20 rule, rulers of Israel, right? These are kings over in this kingdom of Israel as evil because they did idol worship, they oppressed the people, and so on and so forth. Um, there were nine different ruling families of Israel. So the Davidic, the idea of a, a son of David ruling on the throne wasn't even held. Um, Seven kings were assassinated by people aspiring to the throne. One committed suicide, one was stricken by God, and one was exiled to Assyria. So, not a very, not a very happy time. The kingdom of Judah, which lasted about a century and a half longer, didn't do much better either. Um, five kings were assassinated, two were stricken by God, and three were exiled to foreign lands. And then they had eight who were pretty good because... They reigned in the, uh, with the heart of David, their great-great-great-great-grandfather. So at the end of the book of Kings, both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, were destroyed, were wiped out. Again, this is that scene that we see in the, in the Lord of the Rings, where the Babylonians or the Assyrians just destroyed, ripped down the walls, 
of, of Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. All right, now, I want to read a passage, and I want to warn you, this passage is pretty graphic. This is in the Bible, right? It's not, it's not one of those that we quote all the time. We don't memorize this for inspiration. Uh, but I, I want to warn you if, you, if you're not ready for this, you might want to close your ears. This is a prophetic description of the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is important, again, because this is really the opening scene of Isaiah 7, this prophecy of the virgin birth. This is on your passage, Deuteronomy 28, 52 and following. They shall besiege you in all of your towns. This is talking about Babylon. Until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. Again, I was watching in, in kind of preparation uh, for this. I rewatched uh, Lord of the Rings yesterday, part of it, where the orcs were casting these rocks, these big rocks, into the walls. And the walls were coming down. The orcs were going in and basically eating people. They shall besiege you. I'm starting over. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. They besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. And you shall, again, beware of this. I'm just warning you if you don't want to, you know, parental warning here. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb. Yes, you read that right. The flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother and to the wife that he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. And the passage after this one, the verses after this one, is worse. I didn't actually include it because it is, it is so disgusting. So maybe you can read it later. <laughs> this, is the, this is the ancient Near East. This is the year 586, 587 B.C., when Jerusalem's walls fell and Babylon walked into Jerusalem and did horrific things to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And again, Babylon wasn't really any more evil than any of the other cities, any of the other nation states that were conquering those around them. No king was doing justice. The people were worshiping all kinds of different gods. They were actually sacrificing their children to different gods who, who weren't gods, of course, just wood and stone. They were doing injustice. They were oppressing the weak. And this is where we enter the book of, just, of uh, Isaiah. So the destruction which took place in 586, now we're going, again, we're coming back now to Isaiah, which is around 700 B.C., okay, if you can follow the timeline here. There was going, uh, Isaiah talks about the destruction of Israel, right, the northern kingdom. And again, I have passages for this. I don't want to go into all of it. There's destruction that's coming to the southern kingdom. This is this is Judah, and it's just judgment, judgment. So the book, most of the book of Isaiah is this judgment, so much so that, of course, the Old Testament is known as kind of a book of judgment, or it talks a lot about the wrath of God, whereas the New Testament talks more about the love of God. But this is why the Old Testament talks about the wrath of God is because people were so wicked. 
Now, here's where you and I enter into this. So not only is there judgment in the northern kingdom, 700 B.C., not only is there destruction and judgment in the southern kingdom, this is the kingdom of Judah, 586 B.C., but actually Isaiah takes these judgment prophecies and he casts them towards the future. Listen to Isaiah 24. I think this is on your sheet. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Uh, Verse 4, the earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. A curse devours the earth, and it just goes on forward. So that now the entire earth is forecast with judgment. Babylon, Assyria. And then this judgment is even taken. This judgment that originally was probably about uh, Babylon or Assyria, and it's cast even farther into the future. And we see this in Isaiah 66, for example, the last chapter. Behold, the Lord will come in fire in his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh. Those slain by the Lord shall be many. He says, I know their works. These are the works of the nations and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues into judgment. So do you see how uh, judgment and destruction becomes a theme in the Bible? It's, It's a theme because of the sin and the unrighteousness of the people. And I don't think we have to look very far uh, in our own nation. Uh, even in modernity, here in modernity, we don't have to look far to see this sort of sin, if you will, and disobedience play out, do we? We don't have to look very far in our current day. If we wanted to go back just a little bit, we wouldn't have to go back very far to the days of slavery. We could talk about other nations, Nazi Germany. We could talk about what's going on right now in Syria and in other places where leaders, as uh, Pastor Jim said, leaders are committing atrocities and injustices here at home and abroad. It's on the news every day. And if we look closely, hear me here. If we look closely, we see it in our communities. If we pause for a few minutes, we look a little bit closer. We might see it in our family. And if we're quiet, if we pause a few more minutes, we might see it in our own lives. I was thinking about this, and I was reminded of uh, literally Friday, so two days ago. I was talking with a good friend of mine, and um, he was talking about an incident that happened a month ago or so where he lost his cool, and he blew up in this situation. I mean, absolutely blew up with children and others around him. And he said something very, very mean. 
to an acquaintance of his, something that would probably wound this acquaintance for a good time to come. And he said this to me. He said, Tracy, I don't like myself when I do that. I think if we all pause for a moment, there are things that we see in our lives where we could echo his sentiment. Tracy, I don't like myself when I do that. O holy night, the song says, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Listen to this line. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Well, the situation there in Isaiah's day was the darkness and the inhabitants there of the book of Isaiah, that's what they found themselves in. The people had disobeyed God. Their terror nightmare was besieging Jerusalem. The Assyrians in one century, Babylonians in the next century. What would be Judah's hope? What would be the hope of God's people? And this darkness is the darkness that Isaiah 7 enters into. Let me read the passage very quickly one more time, and then we're just going to look at a few points in Isaiah 7.14. This is uh, 7.10. Isaiah 7.10 should be on your hand out there. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. And again, this sign was a sign to Ahaz that uh, the, the coming destruction, I mean the orcs that were battering the walls, would not enter. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as the heaven. Sheol, by the way, is just another name for hell. It's uh, the Old Testament's name for hell. Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, listen then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. So the Lord told Ahaz to ask for a sign, and he refused to do so. So God told him he was going to give him one anyway. Now, we're again mainly going to look at 714. Now, I have three or four things I want to talk about this. The first, the first little point here, very quickly, is that God actually does not speak to Ahaz in this uh, 714. When he says the Lord himself will give you a sign, he's actually not talking to Ahaz. It looks like he is, but he's actually, he's actually opened the audience up. And we cannot see this in English because the you here can be you singular or you plural. We don't have a way to distinguish those in written English. It would be like, you know, if the writer wanted to, you know, they, they should have translated y'all or you or so on and so forth. But they don't have, we don't really have a way to do that. In Hebrew, there's actually plural and there's singular. And we can see that he turns away from Ahaz and opens this, opens this kind of this, uh, prophecy up to the entire house of David and maybe even wider. And the reason why this is important is as we read on, we actually read that this son is not going to come in that day. He's going to come a day down in the future. This is what the end of the chapter actually tells about, is that Jer Jerusalem is actually going to go through a destruction. This is why I had Terry read that, those last couple of verses that uh, where there used to be vineyards and streets and so on and so forth, it was going to be destruction. Now a, a, uh, 
a jackal and a, a coyote or a fox or something are going to be there. And where there used to be vineyards, there was just going to be this place where they, went, they would go hunting. So this son is not coming in Ahaz's day. He's coming in a later day after this destruction had taken place. The second thing that's important here is the, this, the virgin will bear or will conceive and will bear a son. A couple things are important in this one. The virgin will give birth to a son. The first idea here that's very important is this idea of the virgin. Right? And this virgin, again, is actually a play on words with the word, um, he will give you a sign uh, as high as heaven. This is in verse 11. This, this phrase here, as high as heaven, is a word play with the word for, that's translated virgin. So that the, the, this, this woman is going to give birth and it's going to be from the highest heaven. All right, so the author wanted to associate these two words, and he does so with this wordplay here. The author wants you to know that the virgin's conception is from the uppermost height. That is, it's from God. So similar to what we saw in Psalm 2, God is actually going to be the father of this baby, which is, of course, also why she's a virgin. God will be the father of this baby, and not a man. Again, listen to a well-known hymn, Silent Night, Holy Night. All is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. We'll come back to that point here in a little bit, but the second thing here that's important about the virgin will give birth to a son, it's important that the baby born is a human. All right, so on the one hand, it comes from God, and we're going to say more about this idea here in a moment. On the other, on the other hand, it's a human. Notice it's a son. This is not a centaur. This is not an angel. This is not you know, some other kind of heavenly being. No, this is actually a human son. And if the child is not human, he can't really relate with us. If he's only God, he cannot really help us. Has to be a savior who is human to relate to those who are human. Again, listen in the book of Isaiah, just a few chapters later. This is on your handout as well. Isaiah 53 Starting in verse 1, I'll skip around here a little bit. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him, talking about this son, uh, this Davidic son who would be born. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
And it continues on as well. Again, another well-known hymn, The First Noel. Then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord. That hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind has bought. Noel, 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 born is the king of Israel. Or hark the herald angels sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. We see here this task of this baby born to reconcile the sin of humanity with the very God who wanted to be present with his people. So we had two things so far that are important. We had, first of all, that uh, this, was, this son was to a future, was, would come in a future time. The second thing was that the virgin would give birth to a son. The third thing is that he is a divine son. In other words, divine, he is God. He is deity. If he's only man, he's not worthy of our worship. This again leads back to the idea that, that the Lord is actually the one who would beget him or who would birth him from Psalm 2. If he's only man, he's not worthy of our worship. He cannot relate to a holy God if he is mere mortal. Very important point here, and one of the things that separates Christianity from so many different religions. If he's only man, he's not worthy of our worship. If he's only God, he cannot relate to us and save us from our sin and pay the penalty and reconcile us to God. Listen to Isaiah 9. I think this is on your handout too. Talking about the son just a couple chapters later. Look at this, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Notice that he's called God Almighty, this son. This son, again, this is in Isaiah's day. This son that would be born of the virgin was actually called Mighty God. This is a crazy claim, a crazy claim. And of course, was a challenge to Jesus his contemporary was a challenge to Jesus's contemporaries, as I'm sure it was to those who read it in the centuries leading up to Jesus. Again, the first Noel, the angels did say, was to certain poor shepherds in field as they lay, in fields where they lay, keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Noel, 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 born is the king of Israel. Unlike the kings in Israel 
and Judah's history, this king would carry out righteousness and justice. Again, another chapter later in Isaiah 11 talks about this son of David, this son of Jesse. Jesse was David's father, by the way. There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight, the delight of this child, will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This king will be different. Finally, the last thing, his name will be Emmanuel. We read about this in the song as well. Of course, Emmanuel means God with us. The M is with, the Manu is us, and L is God. God with us. The child's name will indicate that God is with his peer. The name appears two other times in this passage, uh, where in Isaiah 8, the next chapter, uh, even though this destruction is going to enter into Judah, Judah has said, don't fear because Emmanuel, God is with us. That's in 8.8 and 8.10. And again, just the echo of God rest ye merry gentlemen. Fear not then, said the angel. Let nothing you affright. This day is born a savior of a pure virgin bright to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, comfort and joy. The baby son, the little baby boy born on Christmas Day is the righteous king who would reign in righteousness. He came to be with us here on earth so that we might be in his presence forever. He is even making now, the scriptures say, what Isaiah calls the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 65, one of the last chapters says, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people a gladness. What child is this? Bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come, peasant king, to love him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. This, this is Christ the king, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him praise, the babe the son of Mary. Let's pray.